Welcome to Bash You Live, everybody. Riz, man, we, we're supposed to be in the studio today. What's going on, man? We're getting a snowstorm out there. Yeah, I, I guess we, uh, I guess we are. Um, down here, it's kind of we're kind of like right on the the fringe of it. Like I think it's kind of skirting the bay and staying north just a little bit. But yeah, I uh, I woke up to uh, mm. messages from. Uh, some people in Jersey saying the roads were a mess. So, uh, yeah, I guess we're uh, we're doing the remote deal today. But that's all right. That's all right. Yeah. We're, it's funny, you know. You're just below the snow line. I'm, like, right on it. And mm. young Justin is in the belly of the beast over there in Pennsylvania. Yes. Yeah. Seems so. <laughs> Seems so. Yep. At this point, I want to be in the studio today, but we're running it virtual again. That's all right. Yep. Nah, well, I'm I'm glad we're here. It's been uh man, it's been crazy time for Bash U. It always is this time of year. And uh we've got man, we've got a lot more coming up. It's like we just got done all of our classes and uh boy, you guys are hitting the road in just a couple days. I can't believe it. The elites are here already. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah rolling uh rolling south again, headed down to Toledo and uh uh, Justin and I will be laying over between Toledo and Fork in, in Texas there, and we're going to be on a full-fledged hunt for crawfish. Um, <laughs> they are still relatively scarce down there. You know, it, it's like it's hard to get your hands on them, but I've I've been doing some, uh, some advanced research, uh, some map study, and uh, <laughs> I think I've located a, a, a pretty dominant pattern to – to unlock some crawfish for uh, Justin, the upgraded intern, and, and I. Wow, Riz, that just made my day right there. I'm. That's awesome, man. We just do the research. I'm ready to go. We'll 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 see, man. We uh we're gonna have to we're gonna have to pull a few strings, but we I think we're gonna make it happen. That's man. Right. For you guys, the, these guys are crawfish addicts, and we just spent uh, a weekend in in Texas and in Shreveport and uh there was no crawfish to be found hardly at all and uh I don't know what's going on but there's a shortage uh so uh hopefully uh man hopefully your research pays off rich yeah yeah we'll uh we'll make it happen we'll make it happen yep. me and rich got into them so good when we were in Louisiana over the summer we put uh everyone in a you know yeah, you can't get any crawfish anymore. We put too much of hurt <laughs> on them. Apparently, twenty pounds in 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 two days is what we went through. So we uh, we did some damage. We're we're looking to replicate that, but it's proven to be a little bit tough. But season's early. It's early. So yeah, well done, well done, guys. Hurting the crawfish supply. That's impressive. Yeah, yeah no, I mean it's easy to understand why a bass, you know, wants to eat a jig. I mean, once you, you know, you start banging on some crawfish, it makes perfect sense. And now I get it why Justin always throws a jig is because he's, you know, now that he's eating crawfish, he's never going to put the jig down. It's over. It's, well, it's, apparently, it's, yeah. <laughs> apparently they don't eat a jig anymore. So we'll see, you know. Uh, well, I don't know. I don't know. So uh, I saw a guy uh, in this tournament that we're going to be talking about using a mop jig. Yeah, I did see that. It was awesome. Banging a top ten out of it, but I, I'm thinking you guys, you guys bring bringing up some good ideas. Maybe we need to put some cayenne pepper on our jigs, or mm -hmm. uh, yeah. you know, some, some Cajun, Cajun seasoning. 
You know what I mean? That works for you guys. It might work for Bass too. Sure. <laughs> well, well, we'll give it a go. But it was cool. We're hey guys, um, Drew Gill's gonna be on the show today. Just won uh a major event, his first major, and uh it was uh, you know, MLF event down on, on Sam Rayburn and he want he's he's a forward facing phenom. Made a really awesome adjustment, which I'm looking forward to talking to him about on his bait selection <clears throat> to get this dub. And he's uh, he's churning and burning. He's you know he's down on Gunnersville now, uh, practicing for a Toyota. He's got an, he's on the Bass Pro Tour. Uh, he's got one of those coming up, and really excited. He's taking a little time to hang out with us, uh, and. And we're going to talk about this, too, because it really makes us proud. Um, he's a Bash University subscriber. He's been with our program for, for quite a while. And it just, I mean, it just fills us with pride when uh, one of our guys is has, you know, gone from a student to a top-level pro and now a champ. Uh, that's, uh, and it's, we see it, you know, we're seeing this more and more all the time, which is awesome. Uh, it's why we do what we do. We, we put this program together and guys are using it and, and getting to the top and, uh, man, forward facing sonar dominated this tournament. We learned so much. Our seminars that we put together this year at Bash U are teaching us so much, many of the intricacies about how to use this, to use this product, this tech, this technology, catch fish. So we're going to dive into that uh today and you know i want to learn about all kinds of things like where these you know how you practice what's a practice day look like how you strategize for um you know catching these fish in the winter season it's so different now with forward facing sonar from what we used to do um and it's changing by the day so looking forward to having drew gill on uh guys if you're watching on social like and share the feed pay attention because the Dan Allen uh, Memorial Prize will be given away at the end of the show. If you That's can beat right. Dan. <laughs> well, Justin will be typing in a question into the IM uh, board uh, over at Bashu.tv. And whoever gets the correct answer first is going to get some cool prizes. Uh, we're not yeah. in the studio, so we're gonna, I guess we're going to give you a surprise pack. Most likely, well, it's going to Crush City of Rapala's in it. Yeah, so the like and share is uh, 25 Tackle Direct uh, gift card, and the grand prize is a $30 Tackle Direct gift card with some Crush City baits on top of that. So, Good deal. Crush City has uh, really exploded onto the scene. Freaking D Dustin Connell put those things to work on Toledo, grabbed mm -hmm. himself a blue trophy, or I said blue trophy, grabbed himself an MLF BPT trophy. I'm just so used Red to saying trophy. Yeah, red got himself a red trophy. Um, and uh, yeah, guys, check him out at Tackle Direct if you want to get some. Head over and uh, get your orders in for some Crush City, man. While you're there, grab your Cortland line, start getting spooled up for the mm -hmm. season. It's coming quick, it's coming quick. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. And hey, if you uh sign up for Bash U right now, we got the seeing red special going on. You actually get that uh, that Dustin Connell winning bait, you get the freeloader. Uh, in that tackle pack, along with a jackhammer, a Rapala DT6, and a fresh BU hat to go along with it, it's a good Sweet. time to good time to sign up. A lot of good content coming to Bash U. Good yeah. time to be studying up because guys like us are still trapped in the winter, 
And uh, it's it's awesome to see people all over the country out there already, you know. Mm-hmm. And even even us, like uh, mm-hmm. we heard stories of guys catching a hundred fish a day near us recently. Uh, great time of year to be catching uh, the biggest fish of the year uh, right now. So uh, yes, yeah, good stuff. And the Crush City is. I can't wait to get a hold. What's this? The the mooch, uh, the the new one. Yeah, that's the prototype. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I can't wait. Can't wait to see that one. It's more of a finesse version of the freeloader to mm-hmm. a certain extent, mm. and um, coming right out of the gate, Crush City. They, they, they just released their baits, and they already got their first major win. Of course, uh, Jacob Wheeler has already been winning uh, with right. these guys through last yeah. year. So no, no surprise there, guys. Go, go check them out. By the way, uh, subscribers to Bash, I know I say this all the time. But I'm always surprised when guys haven't signed up for it yet. Go get yourself signed up for the Rapala VIP program. Take advantage of that. Um, the Crush City is there for you, uh, as well as Rapala Storm VMC and all the rest. That a, a tremendous discount. And uh, so I want I want you guys to go definitely check that out and check out. I know Rich mentioned it, but Cortland Line is also available. This is a braided line uh, that is the best on the planet. It's made. Uh, it's assembled right up here in New York, close to us. Cortland's famous for uh, building fly lines. They've been in the line business for a hundred plus years. So uh, the the braided line that they're producing is phenomenal, and you can get it at a, I think it's twenty five percent off over there uh, at Bash and the member benefits page. So go check it out, guys, and um, come see us at the Elites. We will see you at the Bassmaster Classic for sure. Make sure you come by and see us. We're going to be there too. Uh, we got any other housekeeping issues before we uh, take a break here and, yeah, let's, and uh, bring let's, on Drew? Let's throw on throw out what we're going to be releasing this week. Um, this week on Bass UTV, uh, our on-water release is Pete Gluzak with the heavy Ned rig. Just because you're fishing Ned doesn't always mean you need to throw that one-tenth, one-twentieth, one-thirtieth ounce tiny little suckers no you can kind of power up and fish those things and really trigger some big strikes uh as well and uh our very own pete dean breaks that down for us very nicely and this week for our classroom release we have brandon lester versatility and uh this is a really good one guys brandon has taken an approach to his fishing that that has made him incredibly versatile i mean he he can pick up a punching rod and go drop a two ounce weight through a mat and catch a big giant largemouth. But he's also the guy that can get out there over 80 feet of water and chase him down and hunt him with his forward facing sonar. And uh, he really breaks down the process and how he got to be uh, the versatile angler that he is. And one of the things that was really cool about that one that stood out to me was his ability to learn from everyone that he fishes with. And it's, it's not just, because it's, it's not just if you're on the boat with Kevin Van Dam or if you're on the boat with uh, uh, a professional angler. You can learn from a guy that maybe has just gotten into fishing. If you pay attention to the little details and you, you take note on what's working and what's triggering bites. So uh, definitely check that one out, Brandon Lester Versatility. It's a really good seminar. Excellent. And I think Keith Poche might have been sneaking a look at the heavy Ned Rig seminar that I just released. Because that's what he was doing uh, for his top finish also down here at Rayburn. So, uh, uh, who knew? Who knew Keith could get out there and mix it up with the Ford-facing guys? 
you know, I, I, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him fish out of a standard bass boat for a while, but uh, right. he, he was using a heavy net uh, to get the job done with a bait caster setting the hook. It was, pre- it was pretty cool guys, but we're going to, we got Drew Gill on. He won the Derby. Uh, we're going to dive into the specifics bash you style uh, and get to the juice with you guys. So uh, we're going to do that. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we will be right back after this. Welcome to Minnow King. How can I help you? Everything looks good. I'm friggin' starving, man. Been spawning all morning. Ugh, TMI, bro. What do you want? I'll take a Crush City Freeloader and Gizzard Shad. Anything to drink? Water. Pull ahead, please. Welcome to Minnow King. We're going to have what he's had. Yeah, throw me in a Ned BLT, too. Pull ahead, please. Calm down. Quit feeding so much. I mean, I'm trying to, man. If you, if you, if you overfeed him, he's going to hide under a log. An underwater viewing technology. Find what you are looking for. Catch more fish. Have more fun. Aquaview. Seeing is believing. Why do you love catching fish and rods? I'm truly losing less fish. Is the sensitivity of the rod. That are made right here in North Carolina in the USA. Strongest, lightest rod. 100% made here in Sanford, North Carolina. From the drop shot rod to the flipping stick. Every rod has a purpose to it, and I rely on them all the time when I'm out doing a tournament. Durability in the John Cruz Worming series, the counterbalancing in the handle. It's the only rod I've found that can withstand my hook set. Boom goes the dynamite. On the water, not spent fishing is a moment wasted. That's why Minkota and Humminbird have joined forces to bring you the One Boat Network. Products that communicate and integrate to help you take full command of your boat. Born from our commitment to making the most advanced fishing gear even better by making it work together, the One Boat Network will help you find, get to, stay on, and catch more fish. When One Boat Network products talk to each other, they can navigate your boat automatically. They can give you a crystal clear view of what's below with no messy wires. And they can let you lower, raise, and change shallow water anchor modes from anywhere on the boat. But that's just the beginning. We're never done innovating, integrating, and making your boat simpler and easier to control. All so you can make every second on the water count. Welcome back, uh, guys. Glad to have you with us. Um, we talk a lot about the Aquaview, too, uh, on the, on our classes recently. And uh, so with so much emphasis on forward-facing sonar, one of the problems that guys are running into is species identification. And the cool thing about the Aquaview is you can drop it down and you can instantly know what you're dealing with. And... You know, this is a great tool, especially at practice. You know, if you're out there, uh, if you're a tournament guy and and you're seeing these repetitive uh, marks, to be able to, you know, positively identify the species, being able to determine whether you've got carp, drum, or bass, uh, Aquaview is a great little, great little weapon that guys are really starting to use a lot. So go check that out. We have... Uh, Man, we have with us another champ. Um, this uh, this young man, and it's amazing because we keep seeing 
uh, the younger guys really uh, dominate and winning in um, uh, the bigger tournaments. And they're adapting to the technology so quick. And this guy's one of them. He comes off a, a third place finish on the Brass Pro Tour, follow that up with a big W. Uh, and, uh, you know, down there on Rayburn. So I'm uh, thrilled to have him with us. Drew Gill is with us, the champ of Sam Rayburn. Uh, man, good to have you with us, buddy. It's good to be here, Pete. You know, I, I remember sitting on uh, in on the question side of, of this live show about three years ago, this time of year, asking questions about uh, my first spring season of college tournaments. So uh, this is pretty, it's pretty cool to a few years later be on the other side of it. Man, it is, it is really cool. It, it it fills us with pride, you know what I mean? It's like uh, we've got, um, you, you know, like if you were, you know, if you high school or college, you know, one of, one of your guys that came through your program is out there winning at the top level, man, that's that's exciting to us, man. I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know, I don't want to, how, how did it, how did it work for you? I guess, let me ask you that. Cause you've been a, you've been with Bass University since 2018. Yeah. So for me coming from the state of Illinois, uh, you don't come from a place. that's like a, it is sort of bass fishing Mecca or a, or a tournament fishing culture. And uh, I didn't really yeah. get into, into tournament fishing until I was uh, a junior in high school. And uh, that's, that's when I just became a sponge for all the, all the bass fishing information I could get. And uh, really a lot of times the only way to learn about all these major fisheries without having, you know, I didn't have the money in high school to travel around and fish all these places. So the only way to learn about them was to, to sit down and, and indulge myself with as much information on these fisheries as possible. And Bass U was just the, the best one-stop resource for that, for sure. Man, well, that's, uh, yeah, we're going to, we're going to cut that clip and that's going to be our new commercial deal uh, for the next, next two years. We, <laughs> we love that. We love to hear that. Now I'm, I'm thrilled that we had something to do with it, but clearly you're a phenom. You started your career late uh, by most standards. Like a lot of people are, you know, my, my son's fishing tournaments at 14 now. And um, you know, I've, I've, I've had him fishing for quite a long time and um you know, so you got kind of into it kind of late, but man, you have, you're on the fast track for sure, for, for sure. Is that, do you think it's a technology thing? Do you think it's a gift that you, you have? What, what how are you able to explain your moves so quick through the process? Well, it's a combination of things. So basically there, we all know there are two major facets to, to catching bass consistently. The, the first one is finding bass, and the second one is, is being able to make them bite. And uh, really the finding bass thing was something that I was able to acquire from, you know, lots of study online via Bass U, via using my charts, via Google Earth, things like that. And uh, sitting down and just trying to understand the migration patterns and the geographical movements of bass and how to kind of predict where they're going to end up falling based on different, you know, different processes. Like, you know, this, this week at Rayburn, a big deal was even though they weren't utilizing the cover, if you could look around and you weren't around tons of bushes, cypress trees and willow trees around the bank, you weren't around a population because you got to think in the, in the, in the mindscape of these fish are moving up, they're moving towards where they're going to spawn in a few weeks. And if there's not that good spawning habitat around, there's probably not a big population that migrates into that area to spawn. 
And so even though the fact that there were bushes and cypress trees and willow trees in the backs of these creeks didn't play any role in how I caught my fish, it was one of the biggest reasons as to why there were fish, that, you know, those above average fish there. And uh, understanding those migrational habits of bass and, and all the factors that influence where they choose to live and where they choose to move, how they utilize their environment, plus, you know, having a good understanding of, of forward-facing sonar, watching fish behavior, watching how they interact with your bait, and watching how they specifically use the cover they're around to kind of predict what they want or what they're what they're interested in you know are they interested in setting up for a feeding opportunity or are they staging up preparing for the spawn and and just reading the the cover in the area and how fish relate to it to try and kind of before i even throw out of judge you know what situation that they're in it's a it's kind of a twofold approach really what what a neat observation and uh yeah, right. They're they're coming in to spawn, right? So you got to have good spawning habitat in your area, uh, and that the best spawning habitat is going to recruit the the biggest fish. It, it seems so obvious now that you say it. <laughs> you know? But we just we don't think about it because we we view bass behavior as being kind of a steps along a sequence, but mm -hmm. we don't view it as a whole path. And so that's one of the biggest issues I had when I was starting out was like, I was like, oh, it's wintertime. They're, they're on the main lake. They're on bluff ends. They're on, like, I, I spent a lot of time on Kentucky Lake. So they're on the, the ends of the bars. They're on the bluff ends. They're on the brush that's a little bit deeper. Oh, it's springtime. Now they're, now they're in the creeks. They're, they're on secondary points. They're biting a crankbait on transition rock banks, whatever. Or, oh, now they're spawning. Now they're on bushes and cypress trees and things like that. But like, when when you take it like looking at it like that in a little snapshot basically you're saying i'm just looking for what they're doing right this second and even if the area you find is set up perfect for right that second if the area you're around isn't set up right for the next step in the movement you aren't going to have a big population of fish around regardless of how good it looks and i think we view it in snapshots too often rather than viewing it on a whole timeline yeah. Uh, well, that's a that's a great assessment. Uh, did uh, was, do you think that's what separated you? Were were the other guys uh, were were guys in your area? Were you by yourself, or uh, you know how did how did how did you separate yourself? I was fishing in the same section of the lake that uh, Cal Lane and Alec Morrison were fishing in. I mean, it, I didn't have it quite to myself, but it was definitely less pressured than a. Uh, then that, you know, five fingers to the bridge area that's always extremely pressured on, on Rayburn. Um, but <clears throat> kind of had it, I won't say to myself, but it was, it was definitely less pressured. But the big thing was I had a pretty poor practice. The biggest fish I caught in three days of practice was a 314. And uh, I, I basically was looking at it. Our, our first morning of the tournament, it was 62 degrees at takeoff. And it was really humid. We had a fog delay. It was really just muggy and warm, and the water kept coming up every day. The water temp was coming up, and the water was coming up level-wise, probably a quarter foot a day. And I was like, this movement has got to be happening somewhere. And, and almost the entire practice, I spent most of my focus on just the main lake or in major, major creeks. Because I was like, you know, if there's a big population of big ones, they're going to utilize those major creeks the most. But I think I kind of misjudged Rayburn uh, after being on Toledo for a week. I tried to view Rayburn a little bit through the lens of Toledo Bend and they're two totally different fisheries. Toledo Bend is 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 a timber and bait fishery that when you have that much offshore suspendable cover 
and that much bait, you have a tremendous population of three to five pounders. Every fishery that sets up like that has them. But Rayburn is not the same way. And so I was kind of trying to fish for a population that didn't exist. And as soon as I was able to kind of sit down and, and renegotiate what I'd been doing, I was like, you know, if, if there's not a giant population, it, but they are definitely, you know, starting to move that direction, there's no way they're not. I was like, I'm going to put myself in the section of the lake that I feel like has the best population that's not pressured. Because if there's only a few big ones rolling up, I don't want to be competing with other people for them. So I picked the best section of the lake that I thought didn't have a lot of pressure. And then I was like, you know, if I'm going to break it down fast, I'm going to have to have probably main lake pockets with the drain rather than trying to break things down in some four mile long major creek. Because if they're, like I said, if I'm operating under the assumption that there's only a few big ones coming up right now, even though they're starting to move that way, I got to make it manageable. And, and to cap it all off, I was like, if I can find an area that sets up like that, with a main lake pocket or main lake drain that I can break down fast and has abundant cover where it kind of corners their movements to move along a certain path. Cause we all know like when you have a little edge of rock or, or an edge of hard grass or like even sometimes you even have a dock line when they're staging <clears throat> and starting to move into these places, they'll utilize whatever covers available to move along. That's what they'll, <clears throat> even though the contours in the area are why they're there they use the cover that's around them to transition along these places. And I was like, if I can find that cover, I'll make my job so much easier because I only have to follow one path all the way around the pocket to find whatever's available. And, uh, and so that's what I did. And I was able to essentially take <clears throat> an area I knew had a population and then basically pick the most high percentage and fast way of finding them to where I could, I could take that horrible practice and turn it into, into a win. And uh, it was, it was a pretty unbelievable week, really, because I, I didn't see it coming, and I was able to make a lot of a lot of good decisions throughout the event because it, a lot changed from the beginning to the end, and uh, I was I was very fortunate to move with them for sure. What was the biggest thing that changed throughout that event? Was it a weather pattern deal, or what? <laughs> what, what do you feel like was going on? So the biggest thing that changed really was not it wasn't like an aggressive like one eighty snap change. It was the first day I started seeing this transition happening, and I I fished some areas that I knew had a, a good population around caught two giants the first day and then had three around three to go with it. And, uh, I, but the first day I was all the way at the front of these, these main lake pockets. And like this movement that we see happen in, in major creeks and things like that in a major Creek, when they start moving in toward the back, you know, this is a movement that might take generally probably a week of, of steady warm weather. And, and they'll in a week, they'll go from the fronts to moving into towards the backs. But in a, in a pocket, in an area that's 300 yards long, this movement, although it's the same transitional movement, it's going to happen way faster. And so it was day by day for me. The first day of the tournament, I caught most of my fish at the mouths of these pockets, kind of on the, on the round bends at the front uh, where, the, where the basin hit the front of the creek. And, uh, and so that was like, okay, you know, and I, actually the first day, I was started out with the Demiki rig, you know, the only bait that anybody throws anymore for the most part. And, and was throwing it at them and reeling it over them. And I noticed that like these fish were wanting to follow it up that if you just threw a bait at them and you let it fall past them, they didn't have enough interest to follow it down if you just let it fall. But if you could get them to follow it up and then open the bale and drop it, they would gain interest and speed following it up. And then you could keep their focus all the way down and they wanted to eat it off the bottom, but follow it up. And I figured mm. that out with the Demiki on the first day. And, and even though I hadn't thrown it yet this week, I was, I was looking at it and I was like, 
you know, whenever fish are wanting to follow a bait up, but eat it off the bottom, really the best bait for me in that scenario is almost always a Nico worm. And the second day I made that adjustment and I caught every single fish over three for the last two days of the tournament that I wanted to catch on that Nico worm. Every single fish I saw over three, I caught it. And uh, it was just, it was just something that with the warming weather and the, the cloudy, rainy, increasing water temperature, increasing water level. I just worked my way back into these places. And by the end of the tournament, I was in the back third of, of all these pockets that I was fishing. Just it's, I mean, it can happen so quick when you're dealing with stuff around the main lake, whenever they make a decision to, uh, to <clears throat> make a move, they, they do it really fast. And uh, to be able to stay on it, especially when it's really easy to follow when there's a massive population of big ones. Rayburn has a, a, obviously a good population of big fish, but really with Rayburn, it's the issue is not they're they're not that hard to uh, they're not that hard to catch. It's just finding them and staying on them, and so to stay on that transition with a place that really doesn't have nearly as many big fish as it has the amount of water that's in the lake, uh, it was it was really fortunate for sure. That that that's making that adjustment to the Nico rig. I think was <laughs> special, you know. Uh, and we we saw that um, I saw that live with you. But you're you're talking about following these fish and take me through that a little bit. Like, all right, you're gonna wheel up your your it, and you know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, so you're gonna you're gonna have to take me through it, but you're you're basically on a I guess some kind of break line or a, maybe a certain depth. And you're what happened? Like you go there day two during the tournament and and they're not on the mouth anymore and what do you just you put the troll motor on high and follow that contour down till you find the biomass or, or, or what did you do? How's what that look like? Yeah. So basically, you know, this is a big thing that people don't take into account a lot this time of year, which is this time of year specifically, if you're following these contours that lead into these places and you're following the edges of the cover that's available, you can legit watch their behavior and these fish the fish I was fishing for this week, they weren't stable. They weren't static on a piece of cover or just kind of sitting where they were sitting. They were moving constantly. And over 80% of the fish I saw this week leading up to the end of practice and through the first day of the tournament, over 80% of the fish that I saw this week, when in seeing them cruising around, all of them were cruising facing the backs. And this is something that, you know, mathematically i don't know how it makes sense because they're swimming at one mile per hour and, and you know in an hour of swimming that speed they should be at the back in theory but regardless it is an indicator and it's something that i've been able to repeat um quite a bit on this time of year on places like you know that have contours not as much in like florida where you don't necessarily have a direct direction to follow but on places with contours and places with edges it's really easy to uh, to read their behavior and watch what direction they, they want to move. And when these fish are cruising along an edge or along contour, they're not related to the con, like relating to it in a static way, not just sitting there. And they're not, if there's not bait adjacent, that's making them get up and, and look around for bait and move in kind of an unpredictable fashion. If they're moving in a predictable direction and they're not relating to the cover that's around them, there's a reason that they're moving. And generally those are very transitional fish. Those aren't fish that are focused on feeding as much as they are focused on moving in a certain direction and kind of, those are migratory fish. They're moving to their next place of habitation. And I started noticing how many of these fish 
were swimming in the direction of, of the backs of these drains and creeks. And I'm sure they, they stopped up at times, but a lot of times when I saw them cruising, every fish that I saw actively cruising in a direction for the most part was headed towards the backs. And, and that was my first indication of this movement that should be happening is happening. And I, I just followed it back and using these, these break areas in seven to 14 feet of water. And basically, you know, and this is where kind of the understanding of, of grass fishing comes in, where when you're fishing offshore vegetation or even vegetation around the bank when they're spawning, <clears throat> just having grass or good grass is not good enough. What you have to have is grass and clean bottom. If you don't have both, you don't have big ones. And so I had a good solid base of hydro all the way around these places, but in the basins in 12 to 14 feet of water, clean sand. And it wasn't like a trickle out of hydrilla where it kind of steps off on a slant. It was, it was pretty thick hydrilla that was built up about the same height. And then you'd get to the edge of it and it would just fall off the sand. And that, when you have those areas, it really corrals those fish movements in a predictable way. And bass don't like necessarily being in the grass like that this time of year. They like being around the grass like that. Like you, you snatch a trap or you snatch a chatterbait through it. If you watch your trap or your chatterbait when you're fishing grass like you normally do, they always jump out of the holes. They always come out of the clean spots. And that's because bass like utilizing cover in their areas to, to give themselves some sort of competitive advantage, but they don't like being in it because being in it hampers their ability to move. It hampers their ability to see. And ultimately a predator has to be able to move and to see to, to feed effectively. And so they like being around these areas, but when you have a good hard edge and it goes clean, they have the ability to use that edge to to get up against without having to be in it and that's that's a really important thing for me in the pre-spawn on grass fisheries is having both grass and sand in the same place if you don't have both you don't have big ones most of the time in my opinion man what what a tremendous observation about fish movements still so flies so much in the face of man hurt. I'm, I'm i'm grabbing a bait and going into flipping that grass you know i'm looking for the fish that are inside that and and the tournaments are really being won outside of it especially this time of year. Uh, it's fascinating. Now, how far, how much ground are you covering? Like, you know, the fish were in, out in front on day one. By day three, are, are you like covering miles or hundreds of yards? Or what, so, what's that look? so I was fishing main lake pockets this week. So basically, by, I mean, even though this transition was from the fronts to the backs in, in looking at it from a top-down perspective, really that distance is like for most of these places was 400, 500 yards. It, you know, these are shorter, more manageable places, but over the course of a day, the amount of time I'm spending, you know, just looking for fish actively in these areas. I mean, I'm on the trolling motor at about 2.2 miles an hour all day for about seven hours. So what is that? 15.4 miles on average. If I'm averaging that speed for that amount of time, uh, covering, 15 miles of, of good area, good, rich environment that I've, I've decided is what I need to be around, you know, that I feel like geographically is somewhere they should be moving towards. And then by combining where I know they should be moving towards just by understanding how they use their environment and the technology that we have to be so efficient. I mean, it's, it's a drop dead combination for catching big fish for sure. Man, that's that's covering some water, Rich. That's like you on the on the grass flats. Rich will cover 15 miles in the first hour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you got to cover water to find what you're looking for. But Drew, I, I wanted to know: Do you have any tips or? Uh, let me. I'll just go ahead and say, 
how do you effectively see the fish when they're using a hard, I know exactly what you mean when you're saying a hard hydrilla grass edge, but when you shine over to that hard hydrilla edge, if you're hitting it at certain angles, things can kind of get, you know, convoluted on your screen. Mm -hmm. Like you, you yep. can kind of, it, it gets tricky to see. It's like looking at a seawall. It's, it's tricky to really see what's on that seawall. What are your, what's your color palette? What are, what are you running for your, you know, your, your sensitivity? Like, how are you picking those fish out? So my, my settings, I keep, this is, I think an important part. My, my TVG, I kind of leave on low just because it, you know, you want to be able to allow the, the beam to account for distance. But uh, the big thing for me is I'll leave my noise reject off. I'll leave my ghost reject off. I don't want to tell the computer, Hey computer, all this information that you're getting, that you're getting from the sound bouncing off things and coming back, all of this information, I, I only want some of it because the computer is just going to start to filter it. It filters it non-discriminatorily. It's going to try its best to filter the things it thinks aren't real, but in the process, you lose detail off of the objects you're hitting. And another thing is screen framing. That is that is 100% the biggest factor in, in seeing like, fish around you know, cover and problem. seeing them well is, like is you're how you have you're... your where you're out and you're down or set because gotcha. essentially you, what we're dealing with is, you know, growing up, I had in, in my mom's van, we had these little TV screens that would go on the backs of this, the headrests in the van and you'd put a DVD in it, but you have to choose between widescreen and full screen. And if you chose the wrong one, either you're losing part of your picture or you're squishing it. And basically this is your forward facing sonar image is a fixed image. You cannot manipulate it without manipulating how it looks. And so if you're going to set your down further down, you got to set your out further out. If you're going to bring your down up, you got to bring your out in because yes, there's a lot of guys that run it really far out. Cause technically speaking, they're still seeing the return. They're still hitting these fish and they don't care as much about seeing their body posturing, how they're moving and, and species identification. Because like, let's say we're in a suspended fish scenario. A lot of times what you're fishing for out there are back. And so really all that matters is seeing a return. But when you're fishing around shallow cover, fish around grass, fish around brush, fish around shallow rock. You want it a lot tighter because you want to be able to see the detail. You want to be able to see the little distances between the fish and the cover. I set my out when I'm fishing in scenarios like this to 60 or 70 feet out. It's not at a hundred feet. Like a lot of people run it. And I, my down is going to be no more than about 21, 22 feet. You know, I'm going to keep it between 16 and 22 feet. And I'm, I'm trying to use the whole screen. I'm not trying to get a little, you know, snapshot that's just in a thin rectangle up top because I want my out so far that I, you know, I can't tell all the little details that I need to see. And on mm -hmm. Rayburn, a big thing is like being able to quickly identify in shallow water the difference between a bass, a catfish, a carp, a drum. And although, you know, we can't always know immediately, you can know pretty quick what, what they are uh, within a few seconds looking at them or just pitching a bait at them. But you want to be able to, as much as possible, cut down the amount of time you're spending throwing at things that are not bass. And uh, as far as color palette goes, I'm an amber guy. I mean, there's okay. people play around with a lot of different color palettes. And a lot of people are like like, like emerald or like the, the blue one or even mm -hmm. the, like the 2D blue one. I'm an amber guy. Personally, I think okay. amber is the best color to utilize. It's, it's the color we've always utilized for a long time for seeing cover and seeing things related to cover and right. i don't think there's any coincidence to that i think your target separation with amber is, is the best i mean 
maybe I'm wrong. I think you probably, I mean, the thing with LiveScope is if you use the same color palette all the time, eventually your eyes will adjust. Right. But in my opinion, it's the easiest one to adjust to in fish around cover. And I'm, I, I really enjoy scoping out in the middle of the lake and being over right. 70 feet of water, throwing a swim bait or Demi Curie or topwater, whatever. But where I feel like I, I truly can shine is that shallower than 15 foot zone when I get around cover and things like that, because ultimately that's kind of how I learned to use scope on, on my local lakes in Illinois or Kentucky mm-hmm. Lake fishing in the springtime, like fishing around lots of shallow cover and, and picking it apart. And that's what mm-hmm. I did at Rayburn this week. And it, it worked pretty well, you know, had three solid bags, had three over 20 bags and, uh, and just utilize that technology to make the most out of every opportunity. You know, it's not like I was, just culling 47 times a day i was catching seven eight fish over three pounds a day and i if you lost any of those opportunities that you know over the course of three days i won by a pound and three quarter with weights that high pound and three quarters just missing one opportunity one Mm. in three days Mm. and i was able to catch every single big one i wanted to catch the entire tournament and that was that was the difference for me all right i gotta keep drilling here so you're running at 60 to if you can't tell I'm completely immersed in this whole deal but uh it, you're running at 60 to 70 on on when you're you know working closer to the grass lines when you pull back out and you're getting into you know the true scope and you're sweeping you're looking are you bumping it back out to 100 110 120 or are you staying in so, that 60 to 70 range and and if, if so, I'm if I'm out how are you adjusting like, okay, because like you're you're working at 60 to 70 and you know that where you see your dot on your screen, you make that pitch cast and you're going to land, you're going to hit your hit your cone. And when you get back, if you're going back out further, or how are you adjusting like your cast distancing and, and all that stuff? So basically, if I'm if I'm backing it out further and I'm, I'm trying to fish for fish either A, further out or B, deeper, you, like I said, you got to you got to down and out. So like at Toledo Bend last week, I had my out set to 100, but I had my down set to like 36, 37 to account for that distance out to keep the fish proportionate, keep the fish looking like fish, seeing their body movements, everything like that. And uh, and that's that's really important. But the thing you go, you do have to account for is when you set it out that far, your your cone gets way, way wider. And with with that wider cone, you can read their body movements really well because you're seeing the whole fish within that cone. It's not like like the 32 transducer when we had it. The cone was way narrow. A lot of times you got more of a snapshot, more of a cross-section of the fish. Now you're seeing the whole fish really well because of how wide the cone is. But it also means you have to be really good at noticing when that returns changes slightly based on what direction right. it's going. And, and if you need to, before you make a cast, watch a fish swimming for three or four seconds. Really get his angle down and his speed down to where you can cut him off because I in my opinion the best scenario for catching bass on live scope is not hitting them on the head it's leading them where they never hear the splash they never see the bait enter the water and the bait's already acting the way it should act when it gets to them um when you can do that I did that a couple times this week at Rayburn I caught a 610 on the last day of the tournament in the morning I see it swimming away at 50 feet and I had my screen set to 70. So I was like, I'm, I'm going to hit it as far out as possible. I hit it at 70. He's swimming away about two feet above the bottom. My bait gets to the bottom before he even notices it. And he swims right, just keeps swimming. And then he sees it. And right as he sees it, he bolts down and eats it. Because he never even saw it, hmm. you know, drop down. He never saw it moving unnaturally. It was already on the bottom. And as soon as I started moving it, 
He sees something on the bottom, never saw it fall from the sky like every other bait he's ever seen. It's already there. And as soon as I started moving, he goes, oh, look, there's something to eat. Comes down, doesn't even think about it. Just comes down, eats it, goes back to suspended. And uh, so he he went and uh, ate it, got up, and and I did the same thing with an almost four later that day. Like, if you can, if you can hit that fish on the path he's traveling before mm-hmm. he gets to it and never let him see the splash, hear the splash, or, or see the bait acting in an unnatural way. Like, that is a big thing with swim bait fishing. You don't want to let them see the swim bait before you get it to that flat tracking path. With any tracking baits, especially bait fish imitating baits, like a Demiki rig too, you don't want to see, you don't want to let that fish see that bait just falling and then go straight into flat. That makes no sense. A shad never just goes. <laughs> that makes, when does a shad ever swim just nose down straight down? That never, ever happens. And if you can keep your presentations as realistic as possible, and it acting as naturally as possible before the fish ever even sees it, your, your bite percentage goes through the roof. And I'm a bite percentage guy, you know, there's a lot of guys that use scope to just throw as, at as many fish as possible in a day's time. I'm one that, you know, I'm, I'm going to try and catch every single fish I can catch and everything that I can do to tweak my presentation or to make sure that I approach these fish the right way, just as if it's a, if it's a shot in golf and I'm lining up this shot, I'm not going to step up there, grab a club and hit it just because the, the, the ball's there. The ball's there. You're not going to lose the ball. The ball's right there. Your opportunity is there. But how you take the time to approach, line it up, take in all of the environmental aspects of it, and then pick the right club for the job and take a couple practice swings and make the right, make the right swing is going to make a huge difference. You never see anybody in the PGA just grab a club out of the bag and whack it because it's a golf club and that's all that matters. And it's the same thing with lining up fish on scope. If you squander your opportunities, you never know if that's going to be your first, second, tenth, or last opportunity at catching a big one in a day's time. And why would I choose to waste that by making a subpar presentation? Yeah. I thought, man, it's amazing. It's so interesting because it's the same stuff we do in shallow water, right? If we're visually looking at a fish, you can't land on his head. Uh, you, you, you've got to lead them, uh, like we've always done, but you're really focusing on it with, uh, with your in deeper water, you know, and it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it that way. Very, very insightful stuff. The IM board loves it. So do I. Randall has a question that I, that I want to, yeah. that I want to inject with too, cause I had it written down and, um, you talked about it a little bit, um, species identification, what 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 have you learned? Like you know, when you're throwing on a a carp or a catfish, or you're seeing them move, um, what what things have you learned to say? Oh, that's a catfish. Uh, we can ignore that one. Yeah. So with with the hardest ones to tell, generally speaking, with live scope, are catfish and walleye. Catfish and walleye are almost always the hardest ones to to diagnose from a bass. With drum, drum will show interest, but you can tell how big their head is if you got your screen frame right. They kind of look more like a carp that shows interest, but they don't act like a bass. Bass will move in, a, in kind of a, a determined path. Once they're on your bait, they're probably going to follow it to your feet, and they're going to move a little bit more. I, I don't know how to describe it other than more muscular. Their movements are really, like, sharp and, and calculated. They don't, like, bounce around on your screen. Like a white bass will come up, back away, come up, back away, come up, back away. 
and they'll they'll be all over your stuff versus the bass is going to be pretty calculated your your bait's going to be moving like this and he's going to be behind it at a steady rate whether it's steadily increasing or just steadily swimming at the same pace it he'll be steady bass are steady moving creatures but like drum they don't they don't act like that uh walleye will show interest but generally walleye don't show interest in most of your baits <clears throat> on the bottom the way that bass do so bass when you throw a bait on the bottom He's going to follow it down. He's going to kind of hang there and stare at it. And every time you move it, he's going to get on it and stare at it, get on it and stare at it. A walleye, when you throw a bait on the bottom, he might like kind of half follow it and then he'll totally lose interest, go back to just sitting there and act like your bait doesn't exist. You can hop it over his head. And once he's seen it, he doesn't, he doesn't care. Catfish are different. Catfish are probably, in my opinion, the hardest to tell because catfish are generally in that same size range as the bass you're fishing for. Generally, most of the catfish that are suspended swimming around and sing that are singles are two to seven pounds somewhere in that range and they swim in a flow like state very similar to bass they swim pretty steadily a lot of times but the difference with catfish is how they interact with your bait so with catfish they will ease up on your bait and bass when you hang a bait still most of the time other than like a jerk bait a suspended presentation if you just hang a bait still and you stop moving it, a bass is not going to just keep getting closer, keep getting closer slowly, and then bite it. He's going he's gonna to kind of stop when your bait stops. When you stop your bait, he's going to stop. And, and unless it's like a jerk bait and you can work him up to getting on it and eating it, that's you know really what bass do is when you stop a bait, they stop. The catfish, when you stop a bait, they just keep getting closer and they get on it. And the thing with catfish, too, is like this is something to, to watch when they eat it or when they spook. When a catfish eats your bait, and you swing and miss, that fish is going to bolt off at 100 miles an hour. Bass almost never do that. Catfish, every time you swing and miss on a catfish, he's going to bolt and scram. He's gone. He's in the next zip code. And same thing with catfish. When they eat it, regardless of whether they get hooked, you attempt to hook them, regardless. If they eat it and they find out it's fake, they're, they're gone. 100 miles an hour, next zip code, other county line. They're, they're wow. gone, gone. And bass don't do that. When you swing and miss on a bass, he might like slight spook off, you know, go a few feet back, but he's probably going to come back to it or he's going to slightly jump off it and then just kind of steadily swim off. Catfish bolt off. And, uh, you know, gar and carp are pretty self-explanatory. They're almost always bigger than bass. Carp are generally in groups swimming around and bass generally swim around shallow water water, which is where you interact with most of these trash fish anyways. Bass generally swim in singles or doubles, or they relate to cover. Carp generally are not related, generally are not related to cover. They're swimming in groups of two, three, four, and you can see that how triangular their tails are. So if you can see how sharp their tails look and how just, I mean, mm -hmm. let's be frank, there's not 14 pounders in our fisheries most of the time. Those carp don't look that much like bass, but like uh, another one's crappie. Crappie sometimes look like bass if you're in a fishery with big crappie. Because big crappie, they've got such a tall side that you get a really hot return. And so it makes them look bigger than they are because of how big and flat that side of that fish is. And when you, uh, when you beam it on the side, they look way bigger than they are, but then they turn and they're actually pretty short. And uh, crappie act the same way that catfish do to a bait. They'll come up on it slow and just keep getting closer, keep getting closer, and then eventually they'll bite it. And uh, those, those are the quickest ways to understand it. But really – the fastest way to understand what's a bass and what's not is throw a bait in front of it. If you throw a bait in front of it and it keeps its focus all the way to the boat, 
doesn't break off, come back, break off, come back, and it stays steady and follows it to your feet, chances are every single one of those is a bass. A bass, until you throw at him like 12 times, a bass always follows a bait. He always recognizes it's there. He always does something in relation to curiously looking at the bait. And that is that is the number one way to tell a bass from anything else is just throw bait in front of it, watch how it reacts. That's great. Oh, man, that's very insightful. The question I have for you there to, to follow up is what um, – how long do you stay? All right, we've, we've got a bass. He's followed me in. He's worth my – he's big enough, right? I can tell he's what I'm looking for. Do you stay with him? Do you track him? Do you try to find a different trigger or, or do you, you know, bail and go to the next fish? It, it totally depends on the, uh, on the fishery, really. I mean, if you're on a place like, let's say you were on um, a, a, like a Highland Reservoir, like Table Rock or Dale Hollow, for example. If I see a, a bass and I throw at him and he doesn't eat, I'm done. I'm done. I'm throwing him away. He doesn't exist anymore. Versus if I'm on like a, a Dardanelle, a Grand Lake, a Sam Rayburn, a – a TVA lake. If I see a big one, I'm probably going to be pretty intentional about making sure a I hit him with the right presentation first, which is something that just comes from spending time throwing baits at big ones. That's why so many of your Texas guys are so good at forward facing sonar because they've spent so much time throwing baits at big ones. But so they they know how to make that adjustment faster than most. But basically, I'm going to try and hit him with the right presentation first. But if they're related to a piece of cover, which they often are on on fisheries like the ones I just mentioned. I'm going to mark him and I'm going to come back. I will not throw a second cast at a fish unless his first follow is really aggressive. I won't mm -hmm. throw a second cast at a fish once he's come anywhere near the boat, unless I perceive that that fish is going to leave that area. If they're going to leave that area, that's my last chance. I won't throw more baits at him. But um, as soon as I have a follow from that fish and he's not really worked up to biting, I'm going to leave him be. I'm going to mark him. I'm going to come back and fish for him later. I mean, it really lets being perfectly honest fishing cover with scope is very reminiscent other than the defensive versus offensive aspect of why a fish bites on a bed versus doesn't you know in in other scenarios it's really a it's it's like into bed fishing a lot of times i'm gonna have a run of especially around the springtime i'm gonna have a run of 42 fish that are all big ones that i know are there and i'm gonna run them over and over and over again with different presentations until i get them to bite the only difference with them in bed fish is like bed fish you work them up these fish, you're you're making one cast. That's your opportunity to catch that fish. If you don't catch him, you leave him be. You let him reset up. You come back and you try again. Man, that, that's great stuff. <laughs> I know I see some questions, uh, Justin. The IM board's got some good ones. Do you want to uh, uh, pass along some questions for Drew? Yeah, sure. Uh, Dan Allen's got a good question. Uh, he's wondering how much time do you spend graphing uh a new body of water. Like we had JT Tompkins on. He said he puts like 600 hours on his outboard a year. Uh, so Dan's just wondering really how much time are you putting in graphing or are you just putting that troll motor down and you're, oh, you're scoping and looking for him? Good question. So the conversation I, uh, I had with JT last two weeks ago. And it, this was a very long conversation. This lasted over multiple days is this is where me and him differ a lot. He spends a lot of time looking on side scan and looking for, for cover and certain targets to, to catch single big fish off of. And he, he finds a lot of fish that way. 
I mean, if that's your, your process, you know, if that's part of what you do, that's, that's awesome. More power to you. But in my opinion, fish utilize areas based on the contours that are available and the aspects that are available for that time. So if I'm fishing an area, it's not at all because of the cover that's there. <clears throat> I'm fishing it because of the contours that are available. And so I'm just going to pull up if the contour is set up right and the, the geographic layout sets up right. I'm going to pull up. I'm going to drop scope. And I'm going to look around. I'm going to take one pass because, my, in my opinion, if, if the contours are right and it sets up right geographically to hold the population, and they're there, like, regardless, I can do it in one pass with live scope. With side scan, it always takes two because I'm going to have to go through, find everything that's there. I'm going to have to go through again with live scope. And I'm fishing an area purely based on contours. I'm not fishing it based on the cover that's available, which means I can do it the first time with live scope. So I only ever use charts and 2D. I never use side scan. 2D on pad, though, is, is a hack that not as many people use as they should, and it's, it's really deadly for sure. <clears throat> Say that again, 2D. <clears throat> through a through-hole transducer on pad at 40 miles an hour. That is how I find a ton of fish. Oh, I got you. <laughs> you know a thing or two about that. Looks <laughs> like a finger. Yeah, that's, that's that's some old school stuff that uh, <clears throat> you know. Tell tell me what your perspective. What I've I've used that strategy for years up on the on the big water on the Great Lakes because I've ID'd that at at thirty or forty miles an hour a fish looks like just a tiny little uh tiny little mark. It doesn't doesn't look like much at all. If you're not, if you don't know what you're looking for, um, it, it, is that your observation? And with 2D, I don't use it as much to find the bass themselves as I use it to find the characteristics of an area that I'm that I'm wanting to find bass. Like I'm, uh, if I'm on a bait fishery, it's great for finding bait. But if I'm on a place that's really expansive, that's got lots of of the same contours everywhere, I use it to find little changes in the contours quickly, and I use it to find on grass fisheries, find where the grass starts, stops empty spots in the grass uh you know i use it to find sand it's it's really deadly for all that for sure man well that's that's great stuff um i gotta ask are, you didn't, i didn't hear you mention perspective mode in my opinion once you become extremely proficient with forward and you know what you're looking at and know how to read what's around you you never mm -hmm. have to switch if you are extremely proficient with understanding what you're looking at on forward you're almost always going to be more efficient. I know a lot of people use perspective and it's a, it's a good view for like getting a top down idea of what you're looking at. You know, it's, it gives you a good lay of the land, but ultimately it's never as effective for fishing for a fish actively as forward is. And once you know how to see stuff around cover, even in shallow water with forward, you never really switch. You know, I, I can catch them to two feet deep with forward 50 feet away from the boat, seeing them around cover. Like once you're extremely proficient with it, perspective kind of goes away. <clears throat> well, I, let me ask you this: We've um, just coming through the Bashu classes. A lot of guys are talking about the 16 volt power source uh, mm -hmm. for clarity. Are, are you using that, or, or do you think that matters? Um. So with <clears throat> with that 16 volt battery, I uh, I know a lot of guys are using it. I'm not using it personally. I'm using the my epochs and they're 13 and change volts. And in my opinion, it's just as clear of an image as most 16 volt batteries. Generally, when you get up upwards of 12.7 volts, uh, your your incremental advantage, your marginal utility of every increased you know jump in voltage goes down once you pass that point. So yeah. It, it can be really clear with, with really high voltage batteries, but 
once you pass that 12.7 ish threshold, your incremental advantage goes down quite a bit as you go up. Yes, you're gaining a little bit, but you're not mm -hmm. gaining near as much as you are just making sure you've got that good clean voltage to start with. That's great information. I appreciate that. Uh, I know that that's the whole point is guys are looking for that little extra clarity mm -hmm. and uh, a lot of guys are talking about it. One of the things that I noticed or, or noticed that there was no action, like one of the things I'm old school angler when, you know, I'm out there, um, you know, battling the deep stuff, watching that water rise, watching the water warm. Uh, man, I, I'm itching to get up there and throw a jig up in the brush where they're coming to. Uh, did we lose Drew? Or you still with us, Drew? Yeah, we lost him for a second. We'll add him back when he reconnects. Okay. I'll ask him that question again. You know what I mean, Rich? Like, I'm watching these guys out there battling. Some of them are sitting at 13 pounds. Uh, God almighty, I just want to get up on the bank, put put the motor down, and flip a jig at a tree. You know what I mean? Right. Right. It's definitely a shift that we're seeing. I mean, we heard it when we were in the boat with Brian Schmidt and, you know, the, the, the fishing that day was a little bit challenging. We asked him like, well, what would you do in this scenario? He said, I'm going to keep live scope. Yep. Just going to keep doing it, you know? Uh, but I think it, every fishery lends itself differently also. Like, you know, your, your approach is likely going to be pretty different if you're on Champlain as opposed to Grand Lake. Like, you know, there's, there's, you, you could probably go up, you know, and get right quicker on a place that has that kind of habitat and opportunity where if you're on a place like Champlain and you're, you're scoping out in the middle of the lake, you're, you're going to be a fool to, to leave it alone to go burn a couple of hours. But, uh, yeah, go ahead. You finish that one up for I don't know if you heard any of my question, Drew, but man, I'm watching you guys and sometimes you're struggling out there getting bites or getting your weight up. And I'm like, man, warming water conditions, rising levels. Oh, man, I want to get up and flip my jig at some of that brush on the bank. Do you, uh, in, in your strategy, is that ever an option for you? Or are you purposefully, no, I'm, I'm just going to stick out here uh, and, and constantly try to catch the ones I can see? So that's that's the biggest difference with, uh, with what I do and with – the way that most people view forward-facing sonar is most people view forward-facing sonar as they say forward-facing sonar, spinning rods, offshore. It all is one thing. That is yeah. so untrue. Um, basically, I use forward-facing sonar to make the, the process that I feel like is the best process for breaking down a fishery and finding big fish effectively as fast as possible. I'm not entirely changing other than a few scenarios where we're fishing for suspended fish that could never be fished for before, I'm just using the technology to take the, the things we know about bass behavior and their migrations and behavioral patterns and making it 10 times faster. So I'm not just exclusively saying I'm going to go fish offshore points and offshore ledges and offshore flats and offshore timber and suspended fish. I'm, there are guys that fish purely offshore everywhere they go all year. I'm not one of those. I use forward-facing sonar every single day, the entire time I fish all year. But it's I use it around the bank, fishing laydowns. I use it fishing docks. I use it fishing points and flats and offshore timber and suspended fish. I use it fishing grass. I use it fishing singles that are just swimming, you know, cruising the bank on like the clay lakes, like we see in in Georgia and South Carolina. And like, 
I mean, it, it's such a powerful tool in all scenarios that we really can't just pigeonhole it to offshore fishing. Uh, it's, it's just as powerful and deadly around the bank. And I, I fish around the bank quite a bit with, you know, traditional power fishing techniques. I, I had a tournament at Kissimmee last year where I was catching them on an old monster in three feet of water, um, <clears throat> but looking at them on scope around grass. And uh, it was it was a pretty unbelievable tournament. Finished, uh, I think, 11th in that one. Had a, had a great event. I caught them. I have two top tens on the Harris chain doing the same thing of three to four feet of water with a, with a big stick or, or, you know, with a drop shot, whatever. You can fish around whatever cover you want to with it if you have your framing set tight enough and shallow enough water to see what's going on and – you know, you're willing to play around with different presentations just to find out what has the highest bite percentage. So fishing around shallow cover is never anything that's totally out of, out of the question for me. I just utilize forward facing sonar to make it faster. That's uh yeah, that's fascinating. Fascinating perspective. Uh, just, I, I saw this question before. Uh, what are, what are color, what are clarity? Um, does it, it doesn't, does that impact you with this type of strategy at all? Uh, as far as whether or not you're uh, you're going to be scoping, watercolor does not impact whether I scope whatsoever. Uh, but water clarity absolutely is the major determining factor in how deep a bass is willing to live. Because we can talk about things like their hearing or their sense of smell or their lateral line as much as we want to. We can talk about it till we're blue in the face. But for most predators. And for bass especially, sight is still the most powerful tool for finding food. Our dirty water fisheries have always been the toughest to consistently do well on because of the fact that you have to hit a fish in the face to catch it. That's why power fishing and reaction baits on dirty water fisheries have always been so effective. Talking about spinner baits, loud topwaters, crankbaits, chatterbaits, whatever, because they have so much drawing power. And so when we talk about dirtier water, we, we're going to deal with fish in, in shallower water. We're going to deal with fish that are around cover because they use that cover as a visual reference to know where they're at in their environment. And uh, we're, we're dealing with fish in those heavier scenarios. But in actuality, it's not that dirty water technically determines, um, you know, whether I use it or not, but it absolutely determines how deep they're willing to live. And the cleaner the water – not always do they live deeper in cleaner water, but the cleaner the water, the deeper they can live. When it gets to a certain point, you know, they can't live deeper than, you know, 12 or 10 or some places they won't live deeper than eight. I know that uh, uh, for me, uh, maybe there's places that they do, but for me on the Potomac last year, that was a place where I looked and looked and looked and never truly found any fish that mattered deeper than six feet of water. Every fish I caught at the Potomac that mattered that I saw that mattered was shallower than six feet. And there's some fisheries, another one's um, lacrosse, where when you start getting around discolored water and shallower cover, they just will not live deeper than a certain depth. And no matter how hard you wanna try and beat it into them, for the most part, the massive majority of the big fish population lives shallower than an X amount of depth. And just looking around on a fishery for a few hours, you'll figure out what that depth is, the maximum depth they're willing to live at pretty quick. So uh, the water clarity is a major determinant on, on how deep they, uh, they live, but it's not a determinant on whether I use the technology or not. All right. That's a great answer to a great question, Justin Bean. Appreciate that. And, uh, man, what, it's amazing to listen to you speak about this, Drew. It's very, you're very analytical. Uh, you come at this from, a, from 
you know, almost an academic perspective. And uh, you, you can see it in, in the way that you fish and the way that you talk about it. Uh, what I it, what also has become apparent to me is, is how efficient you are uh, with being able to work with a short, shorter practice period, you know, with uh, with the strategies strategies that you're using, which is is got to be super helpful for you, uh, yeah, especially absolutely. on the Bass Pro Tour. You're not getting very many days of practice for that. No, no we get we get right at about two days of practice for those, and and really. Yeah. Honestly, you, you reach a threshold. I think it's at about the day and a half mark, in my opinion, with practice is where you go from less than day and a half of practice. You are not there to purely find fish. You are there to get an understanding of the fishery, look at the different water clarities available, the different cover available in different parts of the lake, and just try and feel out how the lake lays out based on the forage and the cover available and the time of year. Over a day and a half, that's when we're really trying to dial in and find areas, find fish, whatever. But forward-facing sonar allows you to do both extremely effectively. But really, it's it's definitely geared toward the part of just understanding the fishery really quickly. You know, being from Illinois, I didn't get to grow up in a bass fishing mecca growing up fishing on the TVA every weekend or fishing in the, on the Herring Lakes every Saturday in, in club tournaments, whatever. I didn't get to grow up fishing up north. I didn't I didn't grow up in Texas fishing all those just blockbuster fisheries down there, the Coos River, Florida, you name it. There's so many applicable things you can learn so fast fishing big fisheries. I grew up fishing places that are two miles long. And so the only way that I was able to catch myself up to speed with all of the tremendous amount of knowledge and experience and, and money that has been spent in, in bass fishing parts of the country and learning fish behavior was running around on these places <clears throat> And, uh, and trying to understand them really quickly by watching how fish use their environment or watching what environments fish do and don't use. And uh, that, that is the best thing about forward-facing sonar is just being able to rapidly dial in what environments these fish are using and what they're using in their environment. Because if, if we just were doing it the way that we've always done it with going into an area, fishing for fish on the bottom, fishing for fish suspended, and throwing multiple different baits to cater to those fish. And little did we know the first bait we threw at them, we drew them all to the boat, which spooked them, broke them up. And we, we lost, yes, there was a whole school of fish on that point, but we didn't even know it because we threw the wrong bait the first time, broke them up. Or we go somewhere else, we throw the right bait first, but there's only one fish there and we catch it and we give ourselves in, an indication that there's more fish there than there's not, than there is. And we have to go through such a more extensive casting breakdown process to an area to figure out whether it's truly got the fish that we think it could have or, or that it does have and now just by understanding what certain cues mean with bass relating to cover in their environment and uh and bass relating to certain areas in their environment we can we can do what took us four hours to do in 20 minutes now and so guys are finding i mean that's why we see the most dominant guys in the sport catching more weight and doing better, you know, percentage finish wise in events than ever before. We see guys that don't fail because they are so unbelievably efficient at being able to take what used to take four or five hours and doing it in 30 minutes over and over and over again throughout the entire course of practice. And they've done what used to take us two weeks in three days. That's amazing. Well, and you're at the, you're at the cutting edge of this, my friend, and uh, come off with an amazing giant win. Of course, you just had a, a top finish, uh, a third place finish 
just a couple weeks before a week before so it's uh it's fascinating man i'm 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 excited to to see what's next you're at you're at gunnersville now and mm -hmm. uh then you, you have a bass pro tour coming up after that right where's yep. that at? santee santee Sant cooper next week hey now there's some dinosaurs that live in that place yeah it's gonna be an interesting tournament for the every fish counts format because it's I really think we're getting into a five fish tournament where if you catch more than five, good for you, pat on the back. Because Santee has giant fish, but man, the population in that lake is not what you would expect. In my opinion, I, I went there to look around in December. It's it's a it's very reminiscent of like a cypress tree Okeechobee. I mean, it's really overwhelming. And and if mm. we can get them to get on some cover and get on approachable targets, it's going to be a pretty unbelievable tournament. But uh. If they're being any kind of, of spread out, it's going to be interesting. But I, I'm looking forward to it. It's it's a place that's got a lot of big fish. And as far as making heavy hitters goes, I caught an almost seven at Toledo last week. And, and if I can catch another one over six at, at Santee, I'll make my job of making heavy hitters pretty easy for sure. Well, that's going to be a place to definitely do it. And, uh, man, I appreciate it. I, I, we thought we'd get you for 15 minutes. We thought we, you'd be on the water today. So, uh we're thrilled to be able to get that insight because I'm telling you right now, it, I, you know, we, we work in this field and we're learning a lot from a lot of very, very talented people. But I, I can see clearly that, uh, you know, you're, you're ahead of the curve with this advanced technology. So I appreciate you sharing some of that with us today. No doubt, Pete. I really enjoyed it. And I uh, appreciate you guys having me on. It was, it was a blast. Man, it's awesome. Best of luck down the road. And, uh, Man, thanks again. Thanks again, Drew. We'll Thank be uh, root, we'll be rooting for you at Gunnersville with one day practice. Good luck. Go crush them, Drew Gill. Everybody, thanks so much, man. What guys? I mean, the more we study this, the more we learn. I I think we're going to continue to you know push the envelope there. there. There were some things that I haven't heard before that Drew was talking about today. That's that's pretty special. Yeah, yeah, he's uh. He's a thinker. He's a next level thinker. That's for sure. And uh, you can tell when you get around some of these guys, especially the young ones that are just, it's all they think about. It's, it's all, yeah. it's their whole world. It's consumed with fishing. And uh, yeah, there's uh there's a lot to, uh, a lot to unpack there. Uh, I'm definitely going to be listening to this interview a couple times because I could listen over again too. There was some juicy stuff in there. Uh, for sure, for forward facing sonar. So, the the one of the interesting things that he just said, um, and we we're seeing it in Dustin Cannell, and we've been seeing it Jacob Wheeler for so long, uh, is uh, consistency. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no fail. Like you're they're becoming you're becoming so efficient at being able to target and catch fish that. There's just, uh, you know, no matter what condition is thrown at you, there's no fail. That's, and that's the, 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 that's the one thing that for this, this sport that we love so much, it's humbling, right? And it'll, it'll bury you because you'll get going, get caught going down the wrong path. But uh, some of the, some of the guys are figuring out that, that way to avoid that, you know, that, that pitfall. Yeah. Uh, especially by forward facing sonar, just keeping them around the fish at all times, keeping them competitive at all times. Uh, pr pretty good stuff, man. I'm excited. I can't wait till this year. 
you know, no and we, you know, talked about the Potomac and uh, it was interesting because I, I, he fished that last year and commenting, and this is something that we've known for years on the Potomac and the Chesapeake too. It's, it's hard to catch fish below six feet, you know? Yeah. And uh, his observation there was a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the watercolor, you know, if you really think about it, like times of the year where, oh, you can catch them on the bay and uh, it's, you know, you can catch them in seven, eight, nine feet of water. By that time of the year, the water's pretty clear. So, yeah, that's true. That's true. We had uh, St. Chris's, uh, St. Chris's <laughs> live scope on the bay. Have you got any cool bites yet, Riz? I know one cool bite you got not too long ago. Uh, yeah. Don't answer is uh, is yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's come a long way, and uh, this fall it really uh, it really got implemented even more, and uh, I think it's going to continue coming. Coming into the springtime and uh, not only on the bay, I, you know, I saw it happening on the Potomac as well. Uh, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, this year and seeing how many how many more little things that we can we can pick up on and learn. And one of the cool things about, you know, about this whole deal is like. Uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the top level professional anglers they're 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 the best in the world at using this technology but because they're professional level anglers a lot of the time that they're spending with this technology and with this new style of fishing is you know they generally speaking they have a couple events maybe one two down in florida where it's like really a lot of shallow fishing going on um but then as you start moving and you start going through their their touring level schedule a lot of those fisheries don't lend themselves to fishing a three-day tournament in two to three foot of water for three days, right? So they're not getting as much, you know, time with that forward-facing sonar deal in shallow water. But, you know, one of the things that I really picked up on that Drew said is uh, his ability to, to see fish out to 50, 60, 70 feet when you're in that two foot of water and, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real thing. Um, still not being talked about a lot, but we talked about it a little bit today. And, uh, if you keep your ears open and parked up, you're, uh, yeah, it, we're, I, I think in the next year or so, we're going to see a lot more of that where it's really going to be open into my eyes of like, this thing is a serious shallow water weapon as well. And we saw, we just saw it last on the open with Scott Martin. He was using perspective, but uh, yeah, the, the forward deal is a serious thing in shallow water. So, yes, yeah, St. Crest, long-winded answer. Yes, I've been using it on the bay. Yep, yep. We're going to keep using it, having fun, uh, learning some of the new stuff, guys. Um, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to give away some stuff. Last chance to like, share, feed, guys. Uh, let's do a quick commercial break. And uh, Justin has been working up a uh, grand prize question. And we'll be sending that out real soon. So we'll be right back after this. Welcome to Minnow King. How can I help you? Everything looks good. I'm friggin' starving, man. Been spawning all morning. Ugh, TMI, bro. What do you want? I'll take a Crush City Freeloader and Gizzard Shad. Anything to drink? Water. Pull ahead, please. Welcome to Minnow King. 
We're going to have what he's had. Yeah, throw me in a Ned BLT, too. Go ahead, please. Calm down. Quit feeding so much. Oh, yeah, man, I'm trying to, man. If, he, if, he if you him. overfeed him, he's going to hide under a log. An underwater viewing technology. Find what you are looking for. Catch more fish. Have more fun. Aquaview. Seeing is believing. Why do you love catching fish and rods? I'm truly losing less fish. Is the sensitivity of the rod. That's are made right here in North Carolina in the USA. Strongest, lightest rod. 100% made here in Sanford, North Carolina. From the drop shot rod to the flipping stick. Every rod has a purpose to it, and I rely on them all the time when I'm out there in a tournament. Durability in the John Cruz Worming Series, the counterbalancing in the handle. It's the only rod I found that can withstand my hook set. Boom goes the dynamite. On the water, not spent fishing is a moment wasted. That's why Minkota and Humminbird have joined forces to bring you the One Boat Network. Products that communicate and integrate to help you take full command of your boat. Born from our commitment to making the most advanced fishing gear even better by making it work together, the One Boat Network will help you find, get to, stay on, and catch more fish. When One Boat Network products talk to each other, they can navigate your boat automatically. They can give you a crystal clear view of what's below with no messy wires. And they can let you lower, raise, and change shallow water anchor modes from anywhere on the boat. But that's just the beginning. We're never done innovating, integrating, and making your boat simpler and easier to control. All so you can make every second on the water count. All right, we are back. We are we are back and uh, getting our stuff together. Um, I placed my uh, spring Rapala order. Got new tackle boxes. I love the new wrap stack boxes. Go check Me too, that. Pete. Uh, they're awesome, man. They're 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 really good. All the sizes that you need. Uh, they've got some really cool smaller um, boxes for things like keys and other things you need to keep dry and. Um, Check it out with your VIP program. And we got to get a, some cash and rods order in our spring cash and rods order, um, which we got to put together. The, the icons, we're going to need them. We're going to need them, Riz. We're going to need them down on the Potomac. We're going to mm. need spinning rods uh, to use with our Mega Live. We're yeah. going to need Going to need them. Going to need them for sure. So, Justin, did you already put the question in the chat? Yep, question was already put in the chat. Uh, so first, we're going to do the like and share winner over on Facebook. Uh, so like and share winner is Tristan Beck. So Tristan, send an email to the dean's office at thebatchuniversity.com and get you Tristan uh, Tackle Direct gift card. And over on our <laughs> chat board, man, if you're not a BashU member, the prizes are even better on BashU.tv. But the grand prize question was, what was Drew's key adjustment bait on Sam Rayburn? And uh, Dan Allen was the first to respond, but he didn't spell it right. So I'm giving this one to Chuck Fish, the Nico rig. Dan Allen spelled it N-I-K-O, and that's all he said. Chuck Fish said N-E-K-O, rig. So, right. Dan, 
you'll get it next week, my man. Chuck, <laughs> good job. Good work, Chuck. Good Wait. work, Chuck. And Wait. uh oh, man, you gotta watch Justin. He's just fresh out of college. He's not putting up with spelling errors, guys. No, I'm not. Come on. It's not the NECA, it's not the NECO, it's the Nico rig, and it's spelled N-E-K-O. And uh we'll do real quick the sub uh the week. I believe I put the picture up here. Yeah, so shout out Robert Molina. I believe that's how you spell your last yeah. name. You are yeah. the sub of the week. Check that out with his fresh bash you had. He was at some of our seminars, right, Pete? Yeah, yeah. in Athens and Shreveport as well. Awesome. And uh that's awesome. He he, he uh, when he sent that picture over, he said he's putting some of his new Bash University acquired skills to work. So uh, looking good in the Bash U hat, Robert. Cool having you in class. That's this year. cool deal. I also got one more thing. So we got a. Uh, I started a uh, Bassmaster Fantasy fishing after some requests uh, for Bash U, and it's already filling up pretty good. I think we got over forty five people. Uh, signed up, but I'll I'll throw the link on our chat board and on Facebook if anybody wants to uh, hop in and try and beat me because I don't I don't think I'm going to be I don't think anybody's beating me to be honest. If we I'm got, walking in, we got any skin in the game? Like, what, what are we talking here? Are we like, is it for you win a box of crankbaits? Is yeah. It, so, uh, I mean, I kind of went yeah. and did this on my own and picked out the prizes without asking Jocelyn, so I might Perfect. be getting in trouble, but. Depending on how many members we have, if we get over, I think, 60, we're going to do uh, uh, a winner for each event. Uh, but for right now, the overall winner, whoever wins Angler of the Year, I guess they call it, for the most points at the end of the year is going to get a That's annual Bash U subscription yeah. and some a prize pack of baits. Who knows if that part's going to be a surprise, probably some Rapala, some Crush City. I'll have to give away some of my own, I'm guessing, because Jocelyn's going to get mad at me. But we're going to make this fun. And honestly, I'll probably end up winning. I don't think anybody's taking me down. So that's where we're at with that. So I like it. How are you going to do that? Are you going to do that like your like your your fantasy football setup in college where you had like six TVs Whoa. all over the place, stream east going and all four yeah. corners? Yeah, don't be giving up that the, now. But got on pallets, double decker. Yeah. Are you going to do that on Sundays? So we're, you're just going to be just we'll, Sundays or what? We'll be at a lot of the events. So I'll be there firsthand. I'll be getting a feel. Like when we show up in Texas, yeah. just something in the air is going to be telling me, hey. Oh, yeah. GDP this guy was out late last night. Top. Yeah, no, <laughs> no go. But I already got my picks in. I'm feeling good about them. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. See if you can beat uh, Justin Upgraded Intern and uh, – I'm putting that that link in there, so so join up, guys. It should be should be fun. Pete, Riz, I, and Jocelyn, I want to see you guys join. What's the what? When do we have to have our picks in by? Uh, before the tournament starts, I believe. I, I, this is my first time really, honestly, doing the whole fantasy fishing deal. Like I, I tried a few times, and uh, I, I think it's easier than it's 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 easier to set your lineup than yeah oh definitely like, there's, there's no, no, there's no, trades, there's no trades or nothing so um yeah just join it's it's free to join you just join and and pick your uh pick your squad who you think's gonna do best in the event and uh yeah it's gonna be fun we got we got a lot of people doing it already so it should be a good time awesome I'm I'm joining up I got the link pulled up 
Awesome. We'll get it done today. Can you beat yeah. the Dean? And we're going to take you down, upgraded intern. Hmm. Oh, I mean, you're, you're too you're too focused, man. All you do is throw a jig. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to overcome you. I I don't I don't know, man. This this year's different. I'm I'm a spinny pole guy now. <laughs> you guys haven't heard. The press you in the forward lines is gonna root you on. Yep. Well, the press release hasn't gone out yet, but I don't know if I'm a jig guy anymore. It's it's gonna be a lot of finesse fishing for me this year, boys. Man, you and the you and the rest of the planet, you know. Yep. Yep. It'll be hard to get that chatterbait out of Riz's hand, but I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens this year. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, we are. Uh, what do we What do we got releasing coming up, Rich? Uh, Brandon Lester versatility and Pete right. uh, heavy Ned rig. It's actually Joey Sefuentes on the water, just to make. Uh, Jason Happy, he's been texting me about that. Oh, yeah, that's right. I messed up. It was last week. I wasn't on the show last week. That's why. Yes. Riz is a little little behind here, but you can watch that Pete Pete Heavy Ned rig. It's it's up on YouTube. Uh, It came out shorter than we thought, so it's up there to up there to watch. But we got Joey the Cowboy coming out this week on uh, on the water along with Lester. Throwing the power switch. Yeah. And shout out, shout out to everyone who tuned in on Instagram live today. This was our first time trying it out, and I was over there moderating, trying to make sure we had no technical difficulties. And it seemed like it worked well. We had a lot of cool comments, some first-time watchers over there. So um, awesome. Cool. All right. TikTok's next. Yep. Well, let's go. We'll see. All right. All right, guys. Uh Thank you guys. We are in, like it's a snow day for us, so we're remote. When are you guys leaving for Texas? We're gonna be in the studio next week. Yeah, yes. we can we can rip up. Yeah, we'll be in the studio next Tuesday, right? Yeah, yeah. and then no, Tuesday we after that we'll we'll be live again. But me and Riz will be in in Texas, and we'll probably do like a crawfish mukbang live on Bash U Live for you guys. Perfect. If you can find some, let's do it. Um, I'll, I'll be digging in the backyard if it comes down to it. Not worried about it. They're, they're there, man. Go get them. Good luck. Uh, thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. I uh, appreciate our guest today. It's just a brilliant seminar uh, on forward-facing sonar and uh, and is used to win the tournament, the MLF. So, guys, thanks for watching. We'll see you next week with another episode of Bash You Live. Have a great day, everybody.